That's page 970 in the Church Bibles, or 1507 in the Large Print Bibles. Matthew chapter 6. Now this afternoon uh, we had uh, a meeting about uh, playing football uh, with some of the young people and at Contagious Camp this uh, summer uh, I was responsible for running uh, the football. There was two uh, sessions and the first session of the football uh, I didn't play very well I have to say. Uh, Most of my shots went over the bar, most of my other shots went wide Uh, And I was supposed to be in goal, uh, but apparently the goalkeeper's not supposed to try and run at the other end of the pitch and try and score. And those that play football with me regularly would say that's pretty normal. That was the first session. The second session, though, I really wanted to try and do really well. And there was a special reason. Because during the second session of football, it came upon a day when there was a man that was coming to the camp to do a promotional video of Contagious. And there was a chance that he might come and film part of the football. So he filmed throughout the day the, the seminars and he, he filmed in the evening the, the preaching uh, and he filmed lots of activities. And when I got ready for football, in my mind I was thinking, right, I cannot on camera be seen to be playing as bad as I did the other session. And so I started playing. And my shots were going over, my shots were going wide, I was getting tackled, I even got nutmegged, it was terrible. But the cameraman came and I got really nervous. But when he started filming, the most amazing thing happened. The ball came in, I shot and it went in. And it was on camera. In the next day, we got to see this promotional video. He filmed quite a lot of the football. He was there for quite some time. But of all the clips he could possibly have shown... The only football clip was me scoring a goal. I couldn't believe it. As we were watching the video, I thought, there I am. If anyone watches this video about Contagious, they will think that I can actually play football. Now, none of the guys here will probably watch that video. They'll be sick because they know that I can't usually play that well. But I was really pleased that I was caught on camera doing so well playing football. Now, it's amazing, isn't it, how the presence of a camera can change our whole attitude. Some of us may start sucking in, some of us may hide, and some of us may decide to show off, maybe like children, when they look in the mirror. Why is it that we act differently when the camera is on us? It's because we are concerned about what other people think of us. And in today's passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is taken to the sinful extreme where we see people not playing football, but practicing their biblical acts so that they can ensure that people see them and think highly of them. Now, although we don't have a camera on us all the time, we do have a God who we have read in Psalm 139, who is everywhere and who sees everything. 
And it is his opinion that really matters. And it's to him and him alone to whom we should practice our biblical acts, not to other people. Now we move on tonight to a new section on the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is about life in the kingdom of God, how Christians should live as God's people. And chapter 5 begins with the Beatitudes, explaining what Christians are, the characteristics that define them, and how living this way causes us to be salt and light in the world. Then Jesus goes on to explain God's ambition for his people, which is to be righteous. He shows how righteousness is found in the scriptures, but the only way we can be righteous is by a change of heart. And Jesus shows us, by using Old Testament scriptures, how our righteousness goes far deeper than the externals. It must exceed, in chapter 5 and verse 20, the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he gives example after example in chapter 5 of what the law says, how the Pharisees weren't living up to that standard, and how we ought to. And the only way we can is by having our heart changed. Chapter 5 showed the moral law. But in chapter 6, we move on to practical living. The religious leaders in chapter 5 have faulty teaching. And in chapter 6 we're going to see that they have faulty lifestyles. We go from moral principles to day-to-day life. And Jesus talks in this chapter of day-to-day life as living in the presence of our Heavenly Father. That's the theme of chapter 6. We live in the presence of an eternal Heavenly Father. Every day is living in the presence of of an eternal Heavenly Father. Every moment of every day, we are under our Heavenly Father. We haven't got a camera on us, but we do have a Father in Heaven who is with us always. And in chapter 6, we see God described as our Father 13 different times. 13 times. Because the theme is how we live in the presence of an eternal Heavenly Father. And we're going to see that over three uh, weeks. And tonight, we're going to examine the first 18 verses of chapter 6 about how living in the presence of an eternal Heavenly Father impacts how we practice righteousness. The practice of righteousness is our practical application of biblical commands. And we see in this passage that it becomes a problem when our acts are acting. So let's read chapter 6 and verses 1 to 18. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. 
Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is God's word. Last week, when we thought about the Reformation doctrines, we saw that the Roman Catholic Church taught that Christianity was all about what you do. And when you have a religion that is all about what you do, and it's dependent on yourself, you are going to have to boast to show that you've done enough. This was the problem with the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They did their righteous acts in front of others in order to get applause. Now we all do struggle with this. But it's worth asking the question before we go into the passage in detail, why is it that we struggle with wanting the approval of others? And I think there are two main reasons why we struggle with this. The first reason is self-love. Self-love. We are proud and we want recognition. It makes us feel good to be praised and so we seek it. That's self-love. But for others, there is self-doubt. We need the approval of others to know that we are right. We need that affirmation from other people, and so we go seeking it to remove those doubts. But both of these things come from forgetting the presence of our Father in heaven. Self-love means that we forget him and his glory, and we want it for ourselves. Self-doubt means that we forget his presence And we don't trust him. And we don't trust that Jesus has done everything on the cross that is needed to make us right with him. We forget the presence and the power of our Heavenly Father. But if we are living in the truth of our Heavenly Father being present with us all the time, then our day-to-day lives are transformed. We start to live as the people that God intends us to be. And in terms of practicing our faith day by day, this means 
that we don't make people our audience. And that's the principle that Jesus gives in verse 1. Don't make people your audience. Really, this is the one point of these 18 verses. The one big theme. You can, we'll see it repeated again and again. One principle. Don't make people your audience. Look again at verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. The problem is not practicing your our righteousness. Okay. In fact, notice that in all three of the practices Jesus mentioned, giving, praying and fasting, he uses the phrase, when. When you when you pray, when you fast. All three of these practices are expected of God's people. We are supposed to practice our righteousness. Neither is the problem practicing it in front of others. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, Jesus says something which may at first seem to contradict this verse. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This teaches us that our good deeds are meant to be seen as a light. So Jesus isn't here advocating a hidden faith. So it's, it's right that we practice our righteousness and it's right that other people see our righteousness being practiced. But the point Jesus is making here relates to motive. Look again at verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. And here's the point. To be seen by them. That's the key. To be seen by them. The original word for seen, to be seen, is where we get the English word theatre. The point being, we are not to practice our righteousness for the purpose of other people seeing our performance and giving us the glory as if we're doing a show on a stage. On the other hand, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 is a natural overflow of living out our faith as outlined in the Beatitudes. If we are living for God, seeking to give him glory, then we will be lights to the world around us. We are to be concerned about our witness and what people see, but so that they will be in awe of Jesus, not in awe of us. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 speaks against human cowardice. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1 speaks against human pride. And what Jesus is asking us is this. What is the real motive behind our righteous acts? Why do you act righteously? Why do you do something that the Bible commands you to do? What's your motive? One writer summed up the difference between shining your light before others and not practicing your deeds to be seen as this. Show what you're tempted to hide and hide what you're tempted to show. Show what you're tempted to hide and hide what you're tempted to show. All of our righteous acts must be free from showing off and chasing human approval. 
But if our acts are just acting like we're at the theatre for the crowd, then Jesus says at the end of verse 1, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now we're going to see what the earthly reward is in Jesus' examples. But what exactly is the reward in heaven that we are going to miss out on? Well, it's not actually specific in this passage, except to say that the reward is most likely to be in heaven and be heavenly, since that is where our Father is. It's our Father in heaven. But I think the best place to look at what the reward is, is to look back at the Beatitudes, where we see the blessings of being a Christian. So the kingdom of heaven, comfort, inheriting the earth, being filled, being shown mercy, seeing God, being called the children of God. That's the place in the Sermon on the Mount where we see reward explained, the blessings of being a Christian. But also, in some ways, we receive blessings now, not least from the joy of serving God. But it's mainly in heaven that we are rewarded for what we have done for God on earth. Either way, the reward from our Father in heaven is going to be far greater than the fleeting pleasures that we'll receive on earth. We will not regret in a thousand years having forgone the applause of people in order to please God. The reward of our Father is going to be greater in both substance and in duration, i.e. it doesn't last for a short time, but it lasts forever. In order to illustrate this principle, Jesus gives us three illustrations, using three pillars of first century Jewish religion, giving, prayer, and fasting. Every first century Jew is expected to do these things. And all three of these things are biblical. And with each example, Jesus gives us a formula. First of all, he tells us how not to do it and what the reward is if you do it that way. And then he tells us how to do it and what the reward is if you do it that way. So first of all, giving. Jesus uses this illustration of giving. Giving to those in need is a command all through the Old Testament. It is something that is close to the heart of God. In the New Testament, things don't change. Christians are commanded to be generous with giving to God through giving to the church and being open-handed to the needy in our community and around the world. Jesus expects this of us. He says in verse 2, when you give. But there's a way not to do it. The hypocrites, who are uh, spoken of in verse uh, 2, are referring to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They would announce publicly their giving. When it says the word uh, uh, on the streets, uh, it's talking about narrow alleys, likely the places where the poor would be. But before they arrived, they would want to announce that they were coming. They would announce loudly. Maybe they would use a trumpet. It might be an illustration. It might, it might well be true. But they were saying, I, here I come. So, I am coming and I am going to give. 
so that everyone in the street would know that they were coming and everyone around them would know that they were coming and that they would know why they were coming. They were coming to give and they would show, look at what I'm doing, look at my giving. Now, they, they might even say, well, I'm blowing the trumpet so that they know I'm coming. Otherwise, they might stay indoors and miss out on the gift. But we know that Jesus knows their real motive. He says it in verse 2. It's to be honoured by others. And we do the same thing today. We, we applaud those, don't we, who give big sums to charity. We love the photos where you have the big cheque, where you take the picture with all the zeros on the cheque to, to show how much you've given. The motive here was giving to be seen by others. And they get the applause. They do get the applause. They are honoured by others. But Jesus says that they have received, at the end of verse 2, their reward in full. And the phrase, have received, was used when something was purchased and they got a receipt for it. So that they knew there was nothing else to pay. It was a receipted purchase. And the point is this, that the total amount of reward they are going to get has been received. They've got the receipt for it. There's nothing else. And so the honour of people, the applause they get for giving, is the full reward that they're going to get. There's nothing else. But the problem with this reward is that it's so temporary. Notice the past tense. They have received. It's been and it is gone. People will forget about it after a while and then you've got to keep going back to get more applause. And that's why, by the way, people pleasing is slavery. Because rather than, uh, than, than being rewarded, really you're going, you have to keep going back to get more and more. It's slavery. You always have to find fresh ways to, to show your approval. If you show how much you've given, it's never going to be seen in the same way when you've got the big check the second time. You have to give more. You have to be seen to be doing more. But Jesus teaches us how to give in verses 3 and 4. He says to give so that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. Well, what does this mean? It means that you should give in such a way that not only do you not get applause from others but you don't even congratulate yourself. One hand uh, being behind your back, which you would use your right hand to give, and if your left hand was behind your back, in one sense it could talk about just giving quickly and moving on, but also you could look at it as you, you need both hands to clap. And if one is not seeing, you can't get the applause. The point is, don't just try and, uh, don't try and seek applause from others, but... Go further. Don't even pat yourself on the back. I mean, it's easy when we give to just think how great we are, even if we don't tell anybody, isn't it? But Jesus says, don't even do that. Give, Jesus says, in secret. This doesn't mean that it's wrong if someone else knows what you give. It doesn't even mean it's wrong to talk about what we give. Sometimes it can even be helpful to challenge one another. But it means that our giving must not be done with the motive of other people seeing it and applauding it. So if we do talk about our giving, we must be very careful about how that conversation goes. And if it's within your, uh, if you are trying to talk about it to show how great you are, well then 
keep silent. And the majority of our giving should really be done in secret. But when we give, we are giving really to our Father in heaven. Even when we're giving to other people, it is really to God who we give. And he sees, he sees everything. He is our spectator. And Jesus says he will reward us. Notice the difference here. They have received in the past tense. But here is a a future tense. He will reward you. It's something that is coming and will keep on coming. The second illustration Jesus uses is prayer. Again, all through the scripture we are taught to pray. Prayer has been a part of the life of God's people uh, all through scripture and it always has been. The Psalms are a, a whole prayer book in the Bible. But again, Jesus tells us how not to do it. Look at verse 5. When you pray, so it's expected, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. Notice, they love to pray to be seen. The issue is not the fact they were standing, for that's a, a normal position for prayer. The issue is not that they were in the synagogue, that's the legitimate place to pray. It wasn't even that the street corners in the, and of themselves were bad. That was a fine place to pray. The issue was that they were in these places so that they could be seen. You see, the Jewish people had set times for prayer, three times a day in fact. And at these times of prayer, the Pharisees and teachers of the law would just happen to be walking through on a street corner where the traffic was high. You see, they wouldn't go into the alleys where they would give in order to pray. They would go where the traffic was high so that everyone could see them praying. They would intentionally go at the set times of prayer to be seen praying. So everyone would look at them and think, wow, look how holy they are as they pray on the street corners. And they would uh, perhaps have positions where they were uh, ostentatious in their posture. So everyone who was walking past would see them pray and think how wonderful they were. In the synagogues, uh, in the synagogue service, that it was led by a male member of the congregation who would stand in front of the Ark of the Law and they would pray there. And men would pray up the audience with amazing words or they would try and outdo the guy who prayed last week in a game of prayer wars. The point was, they were praying to be seen. They were putting on a performance in a theatre to get the applause of those that were watching. And they do get the applause. They get the pats on the back. They get the comments of how lovely that prayer was. But that's all they get. Look at the repeated phrase at the end of verse 5. Truly I tell you, they have their reward in full. They've got the receipt. It's been paid for. They've got the reward. They did not receive answers to prayer. They did not receive communion with God. They did not receive any kind of spiritual reward whatsoever. What they received was a clap, a pat on the back, which is also temporary, so fleeting, so vain. And as we hear this description of Jesus talking here about the Pharisees and teachers of the law, he's talking to his disciples. And so as his disciples, we must ask ourselves, does this describe our 
prayer life. It's easy, isn't it, to pray to impress other people. It's part of the reason why our private prayer life might not be as it ought to be, is because it cannot be seen by other people. Do we put up performance when we are asked to lead in prayer or when we come to the prayer meeting? Jesus really challenges us here, doesn't he? Well, what should we do instead? We'll look at verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is how his disciples should pray. The the verse doesn't mean that there is to be no public prayer meetings. We know this can't be true because in the book of Acts we see Christians at prayer meetings and praying together. Jesus is not condemning here public prayer, but rather self-centered prayer. So what is he saying? Well, the, the word there for room was a storehouse where your best treasures were kept. It was the most private place in your chamber. And when we come to prayer, we come into the treasure trove of God's presence. It's where our greatest treasure is, the living God himself, our Heavenly Father. He is our portion. He is our spectator. He is the one that we are approaching. And when we come into the room, Jesus says to close the door. That means that we have to shut things out. It means that our attention is to be focused on God as we pray. Not focusing on the people that are around us. It means leaving distractions behind that hinder our prayers. And when we pray to our Father who is unseen, we pray to one who is the opposite of the hypocrites. We're praying to to one who who we can't see, not the hypocrites who are praying to the audience. But we have an audience with one. We don't have an audience with a group of people on a street, but with our Heavenly Father in a closet. Now this doesn't mean that we, we mustn't pray in public, but it also does apply to how we pray in private, in that we should have private prayer lives. We should have much time in prayer in private. In fact, our public prayer should be an overflow of our private prayer. Although when we read Jesus say, go into your closet, he doesn't mean the only thing we can do is pray in private. It does mean we can apply it to say that we need to have times where we shut out all distractions on our own and spend time with our Father. But a word must be said about how we pray publicly. Because that is the context here. When we pray publicly, we're not to pray up an audience. We are to shut them out, as it were, and pray out loud in public as if we are in private. It is worth not praying out loud if we're tempted to pray to others and not to God. We need to be careful here, don't we? And the benefits of doing so are in the end of verse 6. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Who you pray to will answer your prayer. If we pray to people, then they will answer our prayers with applause. But if we pray to God, he answers our prayers. 
God does not hear our prayers if they are boasting. Neither does he hear our prayers if they are babbling, in verse 7. This is where people would pray with many words to impress God, rather than humbly coming to him in simplicity. Don't do this, Jesus says. God is, is not going to be impressed with the form of your prayer. He wants your heart. You don't need to put your prayers in such words that you think, well, God will understand me if I pray in this kind of way. God knows what you need, it says in verse 7, before you even ask him. So your babbling um, prayers with loads of words are not going to impress him, and they're not going to, by the babbling, make him be arm-twisted into answering. From verses 7 to 15, Jesus uh, breaks into a kind of interlude here in in this sermon which includes the Lord's Prayer. But I won't speak on the Lord's Prayer since we did a series a couple of years ago where we went through it in much detail. And if anyone wants the notes to that, they they can have them if they ask me. But just to say this about it, when we read the Lord's Prayer, notice the focus is towards the Father. It begins with our Father. And then it prays for his priorities, his name being hallowed, his kingdom coming, his will being done. And then it prays our Father in trust and dependence on him to provide our needs, to forgive our sins and to deliver us from evil. It's directed to God in humility, not to other people in pride. And that's what prayer is supposed to be. Godward in focus. Now there's much more we could say about the Lord's Prayer. But for the sake of time, we will... Uh, move on to the third of Jesus' illustrations, fasting. Fasting is the absence of food for a spiritual purpose. Fasting enables us to focus more attention on God as we humble ourselves before him so that our hunger for him can be fulfilled if we, are long, if we long for him, or our hunger for God can be enhanced if we're not longing for him. So it can go two ways. If we have no hunger for God, a fast can help us to long for him as we focus attention on him. And if we're hungering for him, a fast can help us in our longing for him. Now in the Bible, fasting is common practice for God's people and it's always linked to prayer. So in the Old Testament, we see it for uh, discerning God's will in response to grief, in praying for protection, to express concern for the work of God and even to enable people to give food to others as they go without themselves. And it is still expected from God's people today at certain times. Again, Jesus says, when you fast, at the beginning of verse 16. And as before, Jesus explains how not to do it. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, they would fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays and they would purposely make themselves look terrible. So on those days, they wouldn't wash and they would even, uh, I've read, go as far as putting on white makeup to make themselves look pale so they looked like they were really suffering. So that when people looked at them, they thought, well, God, look how miserable they look. They must really be holy. And we can do this ourselves, even when we're not fasting, can't we? When someone asks, oh, how are you doing? Oh, well, I'm really tired from all the ministry I've been doing. 
Or, oh, I was up so late reading my Bible last night. You know what? I hardly got any sleep. Or we can look miserable to make people ask us why we are so miserable and then we can make them feel sorry for us. Now, this is not to say we should never look miserable because sometimes I think that is appropriate. Neither uh, are we to look happy when we are miserable just to put on a show of a happy face. The point is, don't do misery or happiness with the motive of making other people think better of you. That's the point. Fasting like this gets its reward in full. People are praising them and thinking how wonderful they look because their face is so white and they smell and all those kind of things. But Jesus tells us how to fast. And it can be summed up with two words. Act normal. Act normal. That's how Jesus says to fast. Oil on the head in verse 17 was normal behavior at the time. People put oil on uh, their skin to stop it getting chapped and to smell nice. Which was the opposite of what the Pharisees were doing because they wouldn't wash, so they smelled horrible. Washing your face was a normal activity like today. No one should know that you are fasting when you are fasting just by looking at you. There is no need to tell everybody or anybody that you are fasting. Now, it might be appropriate when you're, you're, you're at a meal and you're not eating, maybe explain that you are and, and explain why. But the motive must not be so that people applaud you and think you must be really holy as if you know, fasting on the spiritual scale is up there with the Amazon missionary, you know. But again, it's the motive. The motive of the fasting should be directed at the God you are fasting for, not to make people think you are super holy. So there is one principle here. Don't make people your audience. And there are three illustrations. But as we close, I want to think of how there are multiple applications. And the big question is this. Which spectator matters to you. These three illustrations are representative of all of our acts of righteousness. When Jesus was speaking these words, the point wasn't so that the disciples would know how to give, pray and fast and that they would then forget about all the other acts of righteousness. The point is the principle. And so the question is, which spectator matters most to you? Is it our heavenly father who we should be serving Or is it the crowds around you? Jesus used the word hypocrite in each of the three illustrations. A hypocrite was someone who was an actor who wore a mask to play a part, hiding their true selves. And when our acts are just acting, we put on a mask and and put on an act for the audience so they can see what you want them to see. And at the end of the act... The crowd applauds you. But our Father in heaven is not fooled by the act. He knows what's behind the mask. He's not fooled. And in Psalm 139, we read that when we try and hide in the dark, it says, even the darkness will not be dark to you. God sees it all. He sees everything. So if you're hiding behind the mask, everyone else might applaud you, but God knows. You're not fooling him. So let's think of some other examples of when our acts are acting. We've seen giving, fasting and prayer. 
But what about other examples? What about hospitality? Now the Bible tells us we should be hospitable. But how often can we, when we are being hospitable, perhaps either on the one hand uh, apologise all the time for the food we're serving or the mess that the house is in, purely so that people will say, oh, this is lovely, this isn't that bad. Or we put on such a, an amazing spread, but the motive is so that people will say, this is, you're the greatest cook ever. What's your motive, you see? Or what about being busy? You know, God gives us work to do. We need to use our time wisely. But when people ask how you are, how often do you just use the word busy as a badge of honour so people will think, wow, that person's really holy. Look at how busy they are. Look at all they do. What's the motive? What about social media? How often do we use social media as a platform to talk about ourselves rather than to give glory to God? And then what about our children? This is, I found this, uh, this came to my mind as a, as a particular challenge. Do we want them to obey just so that other people can complement our parenting skills? Are you and, and, and me more upset about how the disobedience of our children makes us look rather than how their hearts at that moment wasn't right with God. How often we can have parental one-upmanship with each other, saying what each other's children are doing, and use them as tokens of our brilliance. I hope you can see that this can pervade every area of life. In terms of our good and right acts, We need to check our hearts to show what we attempted to hide and hide what we're tempted to show. And we should use this passage as inspiration for us. It's so much more worthwhile giving glory to our Father and living in the light of his presence for the reward is so much greater, isn't it? Let's not limit our earthly aspirations to earthly praise when God has so much more in store for us as we live for him. Well, as we conclude, we're going to look at the, the communion table at Jesus Christ, who came to do the will of his Father and bring him glory in all that he did. As, we're going to, as we come to communion, we remember that this involved going to the cross and being a public spectacle, but not as an actor in a theatre. No, this was public humiliation as he bowed to the will of his Father in heaven to bring him glory. And we're going to remember that in a moment as we come to the Lord's table. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's respond to what we have heard in this passage by singing.